Well, good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And to our guests here today, a special welcome. We're glad you're here with us. If you'd like to find out more about our church or perhaps connect directly with one of our staff and ask questions, you can scan this QR code here on the back of the order of service, and that gives you an opportunity, opportunity to connect with the staff. You can also go to the foyer out there. There's a welcome center. You can find out more information about our church if you'd like. And also, when the time comes for today's passage, it can be found on page 925 of that black uh, Bible there in front of you on the chair. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, please do take that one with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. So for the rest of us, we are continuing today in our journey through the book of Colossians, this book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church dealing with false teachers who have come into their midst and have really messed some things up. And to get us into the mindset of today's text, I want to share with you a pretty famous statement I'm sure many of you have heard. People don't care how much you know, you could probably finish it, right, until they know how much you care. It's like every leadership guru has got to put that in their book or their talk somewhere, right? And act like they just discovered it. It's some massive brand new thing. I remember the first time I heard that, I was in my 20s and I was with a friend and a mentor at a conference. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And he bumped me and he goes, hey, that's really good and important, especially for you. And I was like, thanks? I think? I don't know. He goes, but there's the other side. And the other side is once they find out how much you care, you better know something. Which I really appreciated, right? Because there's always the other side to something. You have the like, really plain truth, but then there's another side of the coin. And that's where we find ourselves today in the book of Colossians. Paul has just given us this beautiful treatise over the last several verses of our freedom that we have in Jesus. That we are free from all the earthly shoulds of others and their preferences. That you should not taste, you should not touch, you should not handle. Paul says, no, get rid of all of that. That is not how you get close to God to begin with. And it's not how you get closer to God as you move on. These false teachers came in and they said, well, it's not through... It's not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's all these external rules. This is what God really likes. And so Paul comes in and says to these Christians, y'all are free in Christ from all of that external junk. All of those external rules, he actually says, are of no value at all. Instead, Paul tells us that to grow your faith, you focus on the things above where Jesus is that you fall ever more in love with Jesus, or you let your heart be more and more enraptured with who Jesus is as a person. And as you do that, you'll find yourselves having more and more victory over sin and temptation. That's where Paul ended. That sounds so great, doesn't it? But there's a problem, right? Have you thought about the problem yet? If we have this freedom from external rules... If all we have to do is just focus on the things above, then th does that mean that for the Christian, anything goes, right? There is no limits on our behavior as a Christian. We have complete freedom. All of that stuff is worthless. We all get to line up and with Elsa, belt out that song from Frozen, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Is that what Paul's saying here? Well, now it's time, having given us this beautiful freedom, for him to turn that coin around and say, but here's what's on the flip side. Based on this beautiful gospel in which we stand, how then should we live? 
And so I invite you now to look with me at God's Word at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. It's found on page 10 in your order of service, page 925 in the chair Bible. And I believe it's up on the slides as well. This is God's Word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Oh, would you pray with me? Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us precisely as you wish to be known. And so, Father, as we come before your word today, we do ask that you would once again, by your spirit, open this text up to us, that we might see your truth and love your truth for our growth and for our transformation. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul tells us here that since our life is hidden with Jesus in heaven, that we put off all these wrath magnets that used to identify our old life, and instead we be the people of Jesus today. Instead of let go and let God, Paul says, no, actually put on Jesus and be like him. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. If your teammates in Jesus put on the right jersey and play as a team, put on the right jersey and play as a team. Let's jump in. The very first thing he shows us in verse 5 is he says, put to death therefore. He says, hey, Jesus is coming back in all his glory. He told us right before this, you're going to come back in glory with him. You get to taste in that. Therefore, kill what is earthly in you, he says. The Puritans used to call this the idea of mortification. Isn't that a great word? In, in fact, until about a generation ago, it was a very common practice and word in the Christian life. You don't hear it that much anymore. It basically means to put stuff to death right from this. So in Christianity, you have a couple big words. The first biggie is justification. That means all of your sin is taken and placed on Jesus. All of his righteousness is placed on you. This is done to you by faith when you confess him as the resurrected Lord. It's done completely by grace. You don't bring anything to that transaction except the sin making that necessary. You have no input there. You are completely passive. Justification happens to you. But then you have sanctification, where the righteousness that God has put in you, by His grace, He helps to bring it out of you. You work, and God works to bring that out of you in sanctification. And part of our active role in sanctification is seeing the sin in our life, identifying it, and seeking ways to kill it. That is the idea of mortification. 
The Puritans used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what verse 5 gets at. So what we do is we identify the sin in our life and we hate it in Christ. And so we take that sin to the indwelling Holy Spirit for him to kill. And it's a lifelong process, and they keep coming back to life. Temptation still tempts. Sin is still alluring. But that is the, how you put that to death. Or you ignore all of that as a Christian. And instead of hating the various sin in your life, you play with your favorite ones routinely. And you get in bondage. And you live this poor spiritual life in Christ where you're pretty much always depressed, feeling guilty, riddled with anxiety because the sin is killing you You're instead of killing sin. That's the idea of mortification. And it's right here in verse 5 where Paul says, put to death what is already in you. And what's already in you? Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Not hard to figure out what that one means, right? Impurity or uncleanliness. Passion. This is the ancient definition of passion, okay? It's not enthusiasm. That's what it means today. To them, it meant um, having the wrong motives for things, being inordinately desirous of this. That was having passion. Paul says you put all that away. Evil desires we put away. Covetousness. And then he says, which is idolatry. The ESV here makes it a little more specific than the Greek text. It's not just that covetousness is idolatry. It's really saying all of these are idolatry. This is how you used to be. Your life was riddled with idols. But now you can put them away. And why should you put them away? Verse 6 gives us the why. Because all of these things, Paul says, are wrath magnets. This is the stuff that God really pays attention to in a negative way. Not all that junk from chapter 2, verse 21, the false teachers brought in. Oh, well, Christians shouldn't touch that. Christians shouldn't taste that. Christians shouldn't handle that. God really hates those things. No, those are all external behavior modification. They don't address your heart. Paul says God looks on the heart here and these things in your heart bring his wrath. It's 2023, and I just said the W word out loud. I know. I'm going to end up on social media somewhere probably. Because wrath is one of those things we don't talk about very much, right? How dare God have a problem with me? That's so blasé. We don't do that. See, if you have an issue with God's wrath as a concept, it's because you have an issue with God's holiness as a concept. God's unbelievable dignity and purity because see if God's not really that holy he doesn't have a right to have wrath against our sin but if God is the three times holy God full of such dignity and splendor and purity that we can't even stand it if he's really that he gets to have wrath for the unholiness in us. And Paul says, Christians, when you imbibe in these things, instead of throwing them off, when you take advantage of your freedom to live in these things, your life is a wrath magnet to a holy God. But I love how there's grace that goes right along with the wrath. Look with me at verse 7. What does he say here? He says this, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Isn't that great? This is who you were. 
You Colossians were absolutely wrath magnets like this until God's grace changed you. Oh, it's part of the deceitfulness of sin in our lives, dear Christian. We forget what it was like when we didn't have Christ. And instead of remembering our misery without Christ, how often do we remember and think, oh, now we're missing out on something because of Christ? Sin tries to fool you. And Paul says sin's going to make you think you're missing out on things. He, he has another list of things you're li- missing out on. Anger. Our unholy wrath. We don't get to have wrath. I, I'm just going to say a blanket statement, which is always dangerous. Sinful people don't get to have wrath. It's never right. I've seen so many, in, so many examples of people having righteous indignation in my life. And I, can I tell you, it's never that. Oh, it's pretty in, indignant. I don't think I've ever seen the righteous part myself because we're not holy. We don't get to have wrath. So Paul says, that's who you were. You get rid of that. Malice, just being mean-spirited. He says, get rid of slander. It's the word blasphemo. Pretty sure we can figure out what that becomes. Obscene or foul talk, not just cussing. This is something even more. This is like being utterly disgusting, profane, and just nasty in the way you talk. Paul says, that's who you were, and you just get rid of all of those things. That's who you were apart from Jesus, but that's not who you are in Jesus. You have the power of Jesus now as a Christian to change those things. Notice how we can change them. Look at me at verse 8. What does he say? It's so simple. He says, but now you must put them all away. Just put them away. I love how the message interprets this verse. It says this, it says, it's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Isn't that a great description? Here's this, all this junk that you used to have. You've been set free of it in Christ, and so now you can just take it off and throw it away if you want to. So there's two things happening here. One, all the shoulds, from the false teachers, don't do this, don't do that, you should do this, became a new law in that church. Christians were judging each other based on this new law. They were viewing each other as adversaries based on who was for this new law, who was against it, and how well they performed all this. Paul comes in and says, Jesus has put all of that worthless junk away. Just put it all away. Another thing that might be going on here is that all of their pre-Jesus nastiness was coming back in the church. They were having a revival of anger and wrath and slander, which is not the kind of revival you want, because all of their behavior modification rules never get to the heart. And the Bible itself says that law without Jesus actually brings forth our sin. It doesn't suppress our sin. You know, I grew up in a conservative Christian church, and we in the conservative Christian church, well, we need to hear that because we default to like, let's just do behavior modification, right? Everybody just be cool and normal, right? Please, can all the weirdness just be out there? Or we kind of have that shtick inside of our hearts, I know, and I grew up in this, and I remember it was never said, but it was very clearly taught without actually ever saying it, that look, man, as a good little Christian, don't worry about gluttony and gossip and racism. Just have a quiet time, don't drink and cuss, okay? That's it. That's what a mature Christian life looks like. Because behavior modification is so much easier than put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, isn't it? 
See, Paul reminds this Christian, these Christians here that if Jesus has changed your heart, then your heart will change your life. If Jesus has changed your heart, your heart will change your life. We will fail often, but a Christian who focuses on the Lord Jesus will have a life that falteringly reflects the life of the Lord Jesus, His holiness. We will be falteringly killing sin, empowered by the gospel to put all that junk to death, just lay it aside like old rags. That's what Paul promises here, because if your teammates in Jesus, you put on the right jersey and you play as a team. The next thing we see here is verses 9 and 10. He tells us to suit up. In verses 5 through 8, in the gospel, we're told to take off these filthy rags that we used to have. And what does that look like in the community? Well, if we're on team Jesus, we, we lay aside who we used to be and we put on the jersey of team Jesus. Now you can look with me at verses 9 and 10. It says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So did you catch that put off and put on? You take off that old jersey of Team Me and you put on the new jersey of Team Jesus. And don't miss the power of the metaphor here. Paul is talking to Christians. Paul is not telling people how to become a Christian here. Paul is talking to those already in a relationship with their Creator through the blood of Jesus. This is not about getting salvation. This is Paul going, you're already on the team. Why are you wearing the old jersey? So what does it mean to be on the team? What happens when you wear the jersey? Well, Paul says you stop lying to each other. Isn't it interesting that of all the things he lists, this is the one he really lands on for application. Just stop lying to each other. Under the influence of the false teachers, this community was no longer speaking truth to each other. Maybe they were no longer speaking the truth in love and reminding each other of the gospel, as another part of the New Testament tells us. It could be more specific that people just flat out didn't think telling the truth was important anymore. Right? We're free of all that. God cares about me not doing these things. He doesn't care about this. I can lie and still be okay. Maybe it could be metaphorical that Paul is looking at a group of Christians claiming to be part of Christ, but their life does not reflect any of his holiness. And he says, you are living a lie. Stop it. So this church, full of disunity, full of people casting aside the gospel, full of a new legalism, seeing each other as less than because they're not living up to each other's preferences, Paul says stop lying to each other because this is not a community living in truth. Instead of wearing the jersey of Team Jesus, they were wearing the jersey of Team Me. And Paul says, okay, fine, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on the new self. He points them away from this new legalism of the false teachers and back towards faith and trust in Christ. Put on this new self who's being renewed in the image of its creator. It's a really interesting phrase. Remember what Paul said about Jesus near the beginning of this book. Let me remind you, look with me at Colossians 1. Verse 15, Paul said this about the Lord Jesus, said he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image of God. And so when Paul comes and says, hey, be renewed in the knowledge of the image of the, of the creator, he means be renewed to be more and more like Jesus. And as I've reminded you over and over again, he is saying this to y'all, not to you, singular. This is about the community. Paul is not speaking primarily to individuals about their personal piety. He's talking about corporate unity, living this out as a body. So he says in verse 9, y'all have put off the old self. And for those of you who are kind of theologically minded, Whenever you see Paul talking about old self and new self, your ears should perk up. Especially because here in the Greek, it's not the word self, it's the word anthropos, where we get anthropology from, it's the word for human. So Paul says here, put off the old human and put on the new human. And whenever Paul says that, he means Adam and Christ. He says, take off the old Adam, get rid of all that stuff from Adam, and put on Jesus, wear his jersey, the new humanity of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, when you put on Jesus in verse 10, you're renewed, you're reinvigorated about what you know about Jesus and God. In other words, to the kind of weird ethereal instruction in verse 1, focus above where Jesus is. Paul says, well, here's what that actually means. Put on the new humanity in Jesus. Be like Jesus as a Christian. What a crazy thought, right? Because <laughs> if you're teammates in Jesus, you put on the right jersey and you play as a team. And then he wraps it up here at the very end. The church suits up. The church is the presentation of Jesus to the community. He's the manifestation of Jesus on earth. And that's how Paul ends this passage. Look with me at verse 11 here. What does Paul say? He <clears throat> says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here, Paul says, here, on team Jesus, all of those ethnic divisions, all of those cultural divisions, all of those social divisions, they're meaningless, they're powerless here in Jesus' family. Oh, in the ancient world, we got to remember, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. What's happening over in Gaza right now was just normal. That was life. They hated each other. The only reason Rome didn't have those breaking out all the time is because they put soldiers there and said, don't fight each other. The soldiers were there to keep the Jews and Gentiles from fighting. They hated each other. And then in the world of the early church, they brought that into the church. The Jewish Christians called circumcised, the, un, the Gentile Christians called uncircumcised, Paul refers to here, even in the time of the early church, they still had a hard time getting along with each other. There was lots of temptation to disunity. And then to a culture like Rome, which considered itself to be civilized. We are the epitome of what it means to be a civilization. To be a barbarian was to be a complete outsider. Utterly the wrong kind of person. To be a Scythian, they were the worst kind of barbarians. These people are the barbarians of barbarians, completely unredeemable people. Even Jesus can't save them, they're that bad. And that's not a joke. There are people in your mind you think that about and you know it. And Paul says, it's not true. Not here. In the ancient world, the differences between slaves and free 
were profound. Unlike our unfortunate history, slavery in the ancient world was never racial or ethnic. It was always demographic. Anybody could become a slave if they fell on hard times. And you were considered a failure, a less than person. The relationship in the ancient world to slavery is very much like your relationship to Visa and MasterCard. You're late on two or three payments, and all of a sudden you're a slave. And the people who failed at life and became slaves were considered less than human property, not worthy of anything like those of us who've won and we didn't mess up and fall into slavery. These are tremendous divisions among people. People, that's just how the world was. People divided themselves into tribes, into us versus them. And that's how the world still is, isn't it? And notice what Paul says here, the very first word. Here, where there is the new humanity, those who have put on the jersey of Team Jesus, this community, we're a team. We destroy all of those barriers, all of those divisions that come so naturally to us. And instead, we're a team. Why? How do we do that? Because of Jesus. He is our all in all, it says. My race is no longer my all in all. My socioeconomic status, my heritage, my country of birth, my country of citizenship. None of that stuff is our all in all in Jesus anymore. He's our all in all. So since I don't identify with these things, I'm not threatened when these things are threatened. I can be at peace and harmony on Jesus' team. That's what Paul is saying here. Oh, it's so easy to say, isn't it? And it's so hard to live out. Can I just tell you, this is one of the reasons, this specific verse is one of the reasons we do our greeting time the way we do. And I know it, there's a percentage of you that you just, mm, you loathe it. I know. And I, I, to be candid, I would kind of tend to fall on that side too. It's not my favorite time either. And it has nothing to do with introversion or extroversion. It has to do with this. Here's how my heart's wired, and I bet I'm not alone. Me having my individual experience with Jesus in church feels very fulfilling for me. And when you disrupt that, I consider it an interruption. I describe it with the word irreverent because that's what we do in church where we pull that word out and apply it to things we don't like. And I say, ooh, this is no longer reverent. But you having your individual experience with Jesus in your chair is so far from the biblical view, I don't even know what to call it. And it's so far from the biblical view that I don't, I don't even know what to call it when I do it in my heart too. It's not about extroversion. It's not about introversion. It's not about reverence. It's about verse 11, rejoicing in and giving God glory for the unity he has put together for a group of people who should hate each other. It's praising God for his manifest power in overcoming these differences. It's supposed to grate against you. It's countercultural the way we do the greeting. It's getting us to put off the old self and put on the new self. And I don't want to do that. But the objective manifestation of God's power and glory in the real world, it's so worth rejoicing and praising Him. How can we stay in our chair and not rejoice in what He's done? 
See, for those of us who really get that Jesus is our all in all, that Christ is all and in all, we cannot help but give God glory and rejoice in the fabulous truth that the most ancient, transnational, polysymphonic, multi-ethnic community the world has ever seen is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. How can we not praise him and give him glory for that? See, the false teachers, their fundamental thing that they want to do as tools of Satan is to rob God of his glory. That's why wherever there's false teaching, there's always disunity because the unity of people is one of the ways God shows off. The book of Ephesians says that. God shows off in the heavenly realms by the unity he brings in people. False teachers want to destroy that unity. They want you fighting with each other because it disrupts the flow of glory to God. So they try to build divisions in the church. Y'all are the real Christians because you follow these rules. Y'all are the weak Christians because you don't. And y'all are like not even Christians because you think these rules are wrong. How dare you? He tries to sow that division so God does not get glory. And Paul comes in and says, be who you are. You're wearing Team Jesus jerseys. Why are y'all fighting on the sideline? The fight's out there. Because if you're teammates in Jesus, you put on the right jersey and you play as a team. All right, let's wrap this up. So if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, This is the antidote for all of those divisions we see in our world. I know religion is often blamed for it, but as you see right here, it's people not following the manual because Christianity says right here in verse 11, the gospel actually applied tears down divisions. It doesn't doesn't cause divisions. If you care about the divisiveness among people, you should want the gospel to be true because here are actual resources to have humanity living in unity and joy together. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, you find your identity in Him. And it tears down all these other walls that divide you from others. And for the Christians here today, do you really want to grow in your faith? You want to get past the individualistic me and Jesus shadow of Christianity that comes so natural to all of us? In Jesus, you can put aside all that earthly junk And you can be part of a real community being renewed to become more and more like Jesus. In other words, for all of us, Christian or not, what we're looking for today is repentance so we can believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that challenges us. We're grateful, Lord, that you love us enough to point out our failures and foibles, to show us the things that bring your wrath, to show us the things that aren't good for us. Lord, we pray today as your word has been laid bare before us that you would give us deep repentance from the heart, that we would cast off as Christians all these sins that we imbibe in, that we would pursue after you putting off the old human and putting on the new human in Christ. And Lord, we pray here today for those who do not know you, that you would once again show your mercy, that you would show people how unfulfilled they are and how attractive and beautiful you are. 
and that you would enable them to believe and confess faith in Christ. I pray you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.